you can't solve problems in an area if you're the other. Because I think a lot of times with the police, there's this sense of other. The populations we deal with a lot don't trust the police. I mean, if you want to talk community policing, knowing the community, connecting with the community, being part of the community. People knew my name. I knew their name. I knew what was going on. You know, people trusted me because you can't solve problems in an area if you're the other. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast presented by VIP Community Services that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the Courageous Conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Good evening, John. Hey, Kiva, how you doing? I'm doing well, sir. Happy New Year to you. Happy 2022 to you. And welcome, everybody. Welcome to all our listeners to our Race and Social Justice podcast. I'm Kiva White, and as you can see, I'm the black guy. And I'm John Kepner. As you can see, I'm the white guy. And um, Kiva and I share uh, a common interest in the letter K, K for Kiva, K for Kepner, and more importantly, K for knowledge. The purpose of these podcasts is to uh, try to um, educate ourselves and our listeners on issues of uh, racial justice and social equity. We try to foster what we call courageous conversations, candid conversations. Kiva and I have had many of those um, between each other, and that led us to this idea of having these these uh, sessions. Hey, listen, I, I'm really excited about uh, tonight's show, John. Um, I have I have the wonderful pleasure of introducing Officer Eric Doherty. Um, you know, several several uh, months ago, I would say about two months ago, uh, Eric reached out to me uh, after listening to one of our podcasts, and he expressed interest in uh, you know the platform that we're standing on in terms of promoting social justice and advocating for you know, social equalities in this country. And um, we connected via Zoom several weeks after he had that uh, initial view of the podcast and, had, and we was really engaged in what I would uh, describe as a very transformative, very transformational and enlightening um, and provocative discussion. And um, one of the things that really um, you know, um, stuck with me that Officer Doherty shared was his belief in social justice and how he incorporates uh, this principle of social justice into how he goes about his daily duties as a law enforcement officer. So, Eric, welcome to uh, the Race to Social Justice. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you both so much. I got to say, as a fan of the show, it's pretty fun to watch your intro live because I've heard it so many times now. Uh, That's that pretty fun for me. Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah, so you, I, just, I just wanted to, uh, just to touch upon... Um, a little bit more about your, your, how you weave social justice into your policing philosophy and, and talk a little bit more about that and how, what your viewpoints are about um, how, to, how to weave that and, and infuse that into going about your daily duties as a law enforcement officer. Okay, yeah, it, I think in order to answer that question, I might have to give a little bit of my backstory because I came into law enforcement, I think quite a bit different than most people do. It was a mid-career change for me. I was 30 when I started. It's more common for people to start earlier as a first career, you know, maybe second career. Um, and so for me, the social justice stuff came first. And it was something that was ingrained in me from a very young age. Um, I mean, as long as I can remember, my mom was bringing up issues of social justice and race. And it was just sort of part of my upbringing. Um, and I grew up in the 80s, so a lot of it was fairly simplistic overview of just sort of, here's a real quick idea of the civil rights movement, a real quick idea of slavery, and there wasn't much of a deep dive into it. And so when I went to college, I decided to study American ethnic studies with a focus on African-American studies. And so that was an opportunity where I could take kind of the deeper dive into the subject matter. and. I would say that's where I was really awakened to the concepts of social justice. It's where I first got the, got the notion of how that intersected with policing more beyond yeah. the videos of civil rights, you know, dogs and fire hoses. Yeah. But how it could potentially uh, manifest itself in the current time. 
I had no concept I would ever become a cop at that point in time. I went on from there. I started a summer camp where I had inner city kids come out like Clinton Ford camp. Some kids who had never seen the beach or water and we brought them out, you know, to give them the opportunity. But one of the things I really liked about that camp was that we also brought suburban kids and we took these kids who grew up in completely different environments. And while they were having the camp experience and they got to shoot the bows and arrows and do the kayaks. I think one of the biggest things they got from it was those conversations, those courageous conversations like you guys talk about where you are interacting with people that you otherwise would not interact with and be able to witness that firsthand and how that transformed the kids really kind of instilled in me that aspect of advocating for social justice through just individual people having interactions And that launches us into, as a police officer now, a huge part of what I believe in is the power of those individual interactions. And it's a big reason why I reached out to you guys is I see a lot of stuff on TV about the protests and about, you know, trying to pass different laws. What I don't see a lot of is just individual line level police officers having conversations with people who are pushing for social justice and really sitting down at the table together and figuring out what we can do that we all believe in. Because at the end of the day, if you're into social justice, what do you want? You want better policing. Yeah. Well, if you're a cop, what do you want? You should want better policing. So they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. And I think a lot of times there just isn't the conversation going on. Um, so that's a very long way of answering your question. But I would say oh. if I had to boil my policing philosophy down to just a catchphrase you can put on a bumper is that I try to remind myself constantly as I'm doing every aspect of my duty that I'm not better than anyone else. Wow. That's a different way of phrasing the golden rule, but it means, you know, if I'm going after someone and they're the victim of the crime, they're a witness to the crime, they're the suspect in the crime. I try to treat them always with the utmost respect that I would expect of myself, because I know I am in the position I'm in and I'm wearing that uniform because I had very lucky things happened to me in my life that kept me out of the situation. And I could be every single person on the other side of that situation. That could, that could be me if my life was just different. So I guess I would say that that would be the philosophy if I had one. I like it. I I mean, it's really a nice humble approach to um, particularly in today's time to um, serve in the public. So we, we definitely appreciate, appreciate that. So, so Eric, let's, let's go a little deeper into your, early years before you became a police officer. Uh, you mentioned your mom ingrained into this, this whole idea. Um, where did you grow up and, and tell our listeners where you are now? And, but let's go back to your family environment and where there, what, can you give us some tangible examples of, of what your mom was talking to you about? Yeah, so I'm in the suburban area of Seattle. I grew up there. I've basically been here my whole life in different areas. So just kind of right outside the border of Seattle and the suburbs. When I was growing up, it was much more classically suburban uh, with gentrification. You know, the suburbs are starting to change quite a bit. And, you know, the makeup of who lives there and just kind of what it's like. You know, when I grew up, my schools were mostly white, not, you know, much diversity. And now the same school districts are some of the most diverse school districts in the entire nation. So things have changed quite a bit over time. As far as my upbringing, one of my earliest memories that was transformative for me was I was at Toys R Us and Cabbage Patch Kids were the hot toy. And I was finally going to get one. We didn't have a ton of money growing up. So this is like a big deal. Like we're going to get the hot toy. And I'm looking at the Cabbage Patch Kids on the aisle And you got the white Cabbage Patch Kids and you got the black Cabbage Patch Kids. And I had this moment of realization that I remember to this day. And I mean, I must have been, what, four or five, whenever those things were out, I was pretty young. Yeah, yeah. And there's this feeling of the weight of the expectation that I would pick this white doll, you know, that, you know, that, that, that carried that meaning. And for some reason in my little four or five year old self, that felt oppressive is the wrong word, but it just felt like you know, this thing from outside trying to tell me what to be or whatever. So I picked the black cabbage patch kid. So growing up, I had my black cabbage patch kid. Um, And for me, it it just kind of symbolized that notion of, which I don't think I would really 
fully understand, I mean, I, I probably don't fully understand, but I would understand more in my college years, how much we carry the weight of race, even when we don't realize. And I think as white people, we're not conscious of it all the time, yet it does infuse every, everything that we do. And that was the big thing for me is just realizing um, how, how much it was a part of us because a big, a big thing in that eighties upbringing about race is it was all, we're all the same under our skin. Everyone's the same. You know, it was, it was a virtue back then to say you're colorblind. Yeah. I don't see color. Yeah. And I grew up in that way. Okay. Yeah. Everyone's the same. I'm not seeing any differences. I'm not seeing anything. And it's when I got to college that my black classmates set me straight. <laughs> we're like, no, you're not colorblind and you shouldn't be colorblind. You're like, you're ignoring our experience and you're ignoring your experience and really diving into like what it means and how it impacts us and understanding it when you come into any interaction with another person that you're bringing that baggage and to tie it back in with being a cop. If you're a white cop wearing a uniform, you are carrying a lot of baggage. And if mm. you're not conscious of that, every time you interact with the public and particularly when you interact with people of color, you're, you are missing the boat on understanding what is really going on in that interaction. Wow. Yeah. So, so how did, how did it go from college those 10 years till your eight years ago, till you became a police officer? What, what happened that? So I, after college, I went and worked for a family business for about 10 years. And mm. I was just sort of, I was going to do, I worked with my sister and brother-in-law and I just kind of got to the point where I was ready for something different. It was a bit of a grind. I had got the job initially thinking it was going to be temporary. And all of a sudden two, 10 years of my life went by and I just sat down and looked at careers and jobs and what I might like to do. And I remember sitting at the computer, Googling jobs, mm. never having thought of being a police officer. And for some reason, when that came up on the screen, something in my head clicked. Mm. And I, mostly to that point, I, you know, my view of being a police officer is from the movies and TV and car chases. And, you know, that's very much mm. not me. And I started looking into it a little bit and it's just sort of, I mean, it, within weeks or a month, I was putting in applications and not looking back and it, it ended up being the perfect fit for me. And it went, it went from never thinking about it to doing it hmm. in such a short period of time. Hmm. Wow. So just a, a, another final question before we get into the more the nitty gritty, just for background, uh, could you tell our viewers and us, you know, sort of, what do you do on the job? What, what is your policing role right now? So I'm about to transition, but currently I'm a detective um, in a special unit. I'm not going to go into too many details on that because, and I forgot to put this yeah. caveat, I am here speaking okay. for myself and not my department. Yes. So we'll yes. leave, yep. you know, leave that part of it out. But I'm a detective right now. Um, but the unit I'm on, it's a rotational spot. So it was a five-year rotation and I'm literally a couple of weeks away from going back to patrol. So okay. for the first part of my career, I was a patrol officer. I became a field training officer. So I would have the new officers in the car with me and I would train them out in the field. And then I became a detective, spent five years back there. And now I'm rotating back to patrol here in a couple of weeks. Okay. So you've seen different aspects of policing over the last 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it's a very different experience to be, out there all day, every day, contacting the public versus what I do now, you know, taking a more deep dive into some of the more serious crimes. And yeah. it's one of the fun things about a police career is there is so many different things you can do. It's basically like two completely different jobs. Wow. You know, I, I was reflecting back to our initial conversation. You mentioned trainings and we were talking, <clears throat> we were talking a little bit about the way police are trained and we were talking about de-escalation, you know, because, you know, within the past several years, there's been a lot of, you know, highly publicized incidents of police shootings and police officers being convicted of murder and all these things, utilization of the wrong, <laughs> the wrong uh, equipment and mistaking the taser for the gun. And we, I know we, we got into some trainings, a uh, topic of trainings, and you had mentioned um, that you also provide educational workshops to schools and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about your training as an officer in terms of how are you trained when it comes to, um, you know, 
de-escalating a situation? And, and what, what kind of, more specifically, what kind of cultural competency trainings, if any, is embedded into, you know, your, you know, your onboarding as an officer to help you learn how to, you know, to, to navigate and work with diverse populations. So I know it's a twofold, like what de-escalation and then what trainings around cultural competence and diversity do officers receive to manage work, you know, if they work in a highly, uh, you know, black uh, populated community. So, I've been a police officer for over 10 years now. So when I got my initial training, it was quite a while ago now, especially if you look in the context of how much change has been happening in the last couple of years. Yeah. And so when I went through the police academy and I was first trained, they were very much of the mindset. They had this saying, ask, make, tell. Mm. You, know, you ask them once, they don't do it. You know, you tell them. I think I did the ask, tell, make. I said that wrong. Second, you tell them to do it. And then if they're not doing it still, you make them do it. And that was it. It was, you know, there's no, you know, how do you talk them in? How do you get them? It's just, nope, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do it. I'm going to tell you to do it. And I'm just going to make you to do it. Um, mm. And so there wasn't a lot of talk about de-escalation in general. It was just, you know, kind of where the police, we tell you what to do, you do it. And we, then we make you do it. My understanding, I haven't been through it, obviously, is that the police academy now is doing a lot more in the realm of de-escalation and how you deal with people and, you know, how to deal with people who are in mental health crisis or how to understand, is this person not responding to what I'm saying? Are they resisting, you know, because they want to fight and they're, you know, not trying not to go to jail or are they in some kind of crisis that there might be a better way to deal with? And so I haven't personally had nearly as much training as I think maybe some of the newer officers had because we're still playing catch up up where we're at in Washington state, they've passed some new laws. They're mandating de-escalation training. They're doing stuff like that. So I think it's coming and it's going to get ramped up, but I've yet to kind of really see it in practice. It's something that you learn out on the street from the officers who are really good at talking to people and, and you'll see it and it's night and day. You'll go out with some officers and there'll be a tense situation and you're like, oh man, we're, we're about to fight because, you know, this officer is getting this guy worked up versus I have some officers that I work with. I walk into the most volatile situation you could possibly imagine. And I'm like, we're, we're going to be fine. Like we're, we're yeah. going to talk our way out of it. And so it is like, it's such an important skill, but I think we're just now as a profession learning how to number one, hire for it. And number yep. two, train for oh, it. Oh, good point. It, yeah, yeah. It's a huge part of it is. It's not necessarily something we were looking for before. When you think about being a police officer, you don't necessarily historically look at a huge amount of overlap with social work and, you know, basically street therapy and a lot of the other things that we're asked to do. And so it's a new thing for people to figure out is, okay, we need people who can handle themselves in a situation, you know, if people start throwing punches and pulling guns, you know, we've got to protect the public and we've got to get home safe to our family. But there's this whole other skill set we need. You know, there's more medical skill set. We're out there on the front line now with Narcan, you know, saving people on overdoses, because a lot of times we're getting to medical situations. CPR is faster than everyone. We're dealing with mental health crisis. We're dealing with addiction. We're, we're dealing with yeah. so many things that I think there's this re-looking at what does it mean to be a police officer? How do we better train for that, hire for that? And I think that's one of the more interesting things to come out of this whole conversations that happened in the last couple of years is this acknowledgement that this is, this is a job that you're asking people to do an awfully lot. Yeah. Maybe we should put, you know, more resources into the training, the recruiting, the making the job more appealing to a wider selection of people. Yeah. So Eric, when I say defund the police, what goes through mm-hmm. your mind? First reaction. Mm-hmm. So my first reaction, and I mean, it's, a, it's something I've heard so many times that, you know, I don't get, you know, I just, I already have it preloaded is the term is obviously problematic because if you say that to the police, they're going to have a knee jerk reaction. I mean, no, if I said defund Kiva and John, I mean, you're not going to like it. Like no one wants to be defunded if that's you, <laughs> right. but if you break down some of the tenets of it, like if I sit down with some of my police officer friends and I talk about the concept of, you know, getting mental health workers to go to some of these calls or 
there's a real sense within the police that we're being asked to do stuff that we're not necessarily the most qualified for, which I think is kind of the idea of defund is as a society, I think we've gotten a little bit lazy and just kind of thrown police out there as, hey, how about you just go fix all the problems that we've created by not funding social programs and, you know, not prioritizing education in the family and you just go deal with it and yeah, we're going to give you yeah. a gun and some handcuffs to go deal with it. And so I think if we took away the phrase defund the police and we had people that were advocating for putting some of those other social issues on the plate of other people and taking it off of the police, I think everyone in the room would probably be like, yeah, that sounds good to all of us. And so I, I think if we could just get away from the term. And right. so I, one of the things that we're using now um, where I'm at in a lot of different regions, they call it co-responders. And that has a lot more buy-off. It's not, hey, we're gonna get rid of the police. It's when we have a mental health issue, we're gonna send a police officer just in case, because a lot of times those will escalate the violence very quickly. And we don't wanna see social workers getting stabbed and hurt, right. but we send them with a social worker. And if it's not a volatile, dangerous situation, this person who has all of their training and skill in dealing with people in crisis is going to take the lead. Now, if the person pulls out a knife and runs at us, the police officer will take the lead. But it's a, a, it's a co-responder model. Um, and I also think just personally, the best way to defund the police, if you want to defund the police, is to focus on those other programs, make them work, and we won't be necessary. Yeah. I know, I know we talked a little bit about, about that. I shared with you in our initial conversation when I was working uh, in Baltimore, just about 10 years ago in the city of Baltimore. And you, you're right on target with this because they did an, an initiative like that. And I was part of um, putting this program together where all new recruits in the Baltimore City Police Department uh, was, went through a mental health first aid training. And you're familiar with mental health first aid. It's a new national model. And they now even have a mental health first aid for youth. And so it really teaches you how, you know, how to like, like, it's just like regular first aid. You see somebody with a cut, it gives you specific instructions on how to bandage the, the cut in the wound. Well, the same thing for mental health first aid, that's the same concept. When you see somebody with a mental health or, or, or a suspected mental health condition, these are the things that you can do to aid and support that person. And um, the, 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 the city of Baltimore invested um, like you said, instead of defunding, they took some of the money and they put it into this program. And they had special units uh, that was uh, that they were trained, special officers that were trained in mental health first aid. So when a call came with someone wielding a knife or something like that, instead of calling a regular unit, they would call the they would call the MHFA unit and they would respond first. Such so kind of sort of like what you're what you're talking about there. So those type of strategies, I think, are very you know very instrumental there. They're, those are, are they are de-escalating tactics, right? So to speak, and I think it it it'll help us um, reduce some of what I'm about to ask you now in terms of the, the 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 propensity for police officers to arrive on scene and in a split second make a decision to pull their weapon. You know, so my question to you is: Have you ever had to draw your weapon, and what was that like for you? Because most of the time, where you you see these cases, you hear this concept: I feared for my life. And so that was the that was my number one reason that I I drew my weapon. So share a little bit about like have you ever had to draw your weapon, and on, under what circumstances would you would you have to feel that you would have to draw your weapon? What give us a give us an insight on what it's like from a police officer when it comes to something like that? Yeah, so I'll answer the the bulk of the question there about me personally doing it, and it's very common. It's something that happens regularly. And it's basically anytime you're going in a situation where you think someone might be armed with a weapon, um, any high risk situation, you know, maybe, you know, the person's got a warrant for a violent crime and you're going to go try to arrest them. Uh, if you don't have a position of safety, you know, you're walking into say we, someone broke into a building, we might take them out. Um, cause we don't know who's popping out of where and the amount of time it takes to reach down and grab it is too long. I mean, the reaction time, and we're trained a lot on reaction versus reaction, and you realize pretty quickly in the academy, you know, using guns that fire basically like little paintballs or, you know, simulations, you know, if you're not ahead of that curve, you're dead. Like that's just all there is to it. And so there's a lot of training that goes into how to be prepared for those situations. 
And right. so for me, yeah, it's, it's out on patrol. It's a regular thing because where I work, we do have a lot of violent crime. And so we're going into situations fairly regularly where it, there could be armed people, there could be something that happens. Obviously, very, very typically, not, you know, you put the gun away, it's all, everything's all safe and, you know, nothing has to happen. I can very clearly remember, though, the very first time when it got mm. to the point where I had my gun up, pointed at somebody, mm. you know, finger ready to go. And I was in my head, if this person does this, you know, if they reach here, if they do this, I've got to pull the trigger. If right. they don't, then I won't, you know, it was to that point where we knew he had a gun, we knew where it was, we knew, you know, and he wasn't looking like he was going to want to cooperate, even as people are trying to talk him down. And for me, you know, I definitely grew up, I, I didn't get into fights, I never used a gun, I'm not a violent person, I don't like violence, yet I was ready, you know, that was my job, and that's how I was going to yeah. protect the community and, you know, protect my partners who were there. And the first time I felt myself get to that point of I'm about to kill someone if I need to, that was life changing, you know, realizing yeah. that I could, you know, it was very impactful for me from that point on. Uh, but it's something that I and, you know, most police officers take extremely seriously out there. Yeah. Um, and then the flip side of it, you kind of talked about this notion of the, the fearing for my safety, because that comes up a lot. And I think it comes up a lot in the context of this notion that cops can kind of get away with stuff of just, oh, well, I just feared for my safety and then you're yeah. good to go. And so to back up a little bit on that, because I think that's a super important point and kind of goes to what we just talked about, about kind of the change in culture and training. Yeah. When I was trained coming through the academy and afterwards, and a huge part of it was basically like they were showing you that. 10 million ways that you could die out there. And we watched videos over and over again. Most of our training scenarios were mm. people pulling weapons and you're basically just ingrained in your head, man. Someone's going to jump out from somewhere. Someone's going to pull a gun. Every time I do a traffic stop, someone's going to shoot. And here's what you do to protect against that. And you get almost to the point where every interaction you're going into with the public, yeah. that's, that's what you're leading with. And that's uh, not a very, healthy way i mean imagine if you went around your life that way and every time you went in a room with someone every time you talked it's like oh this person might be about to kill me you know that's right that's yeah. that's not the best dynamic um but obviously there's an element of it that's obviously necessary because we do have to be prepared it's a weird job in the sense that i can go days in a row nothing happens and then all of a sudden when i least expect it someone pulls a weapon on me and if i'm not prepared for that, you can't function. And I think that's the trick we're trying to navigate now as a profession yeah. is how do we do the one thing where you're prepared for it? You have the skills, you have the reaction time, yet you're not going around and treating everyone like they're about to kill you. And you're not, more importantly, misinterpreting what people do because you're seeing yeah. it through that lens. And I think that's what happens a lot is I think a lot of cops who get into you know what looks like a terrible shooting situation to the general public if you got inside their head they're living in this world where man everyone who reaches for a phone or a wallet or this is oh my god you know mm. there's there's that kind of sense and i think it's a tricky thing to navigate because having been out there and been in situations where i thought someone was going to kill me been in situations where i thought i was going to kill somebody like that's something that's you know gonna yeah. be in your head it's not like any other job where you can you know focus entirely on your other skill set. But I will say, I think one of the huge elements of it is going back to the de-escalation and the, how we treat people, trying to incorporate that into our training in the sense that that is officer safety. That is, right. we're not doing it just because we want to be nice guys and make the public feel good or whatever it is. It also is going to keep us safe. Because I can tell you, I've been around the most tactical people in the world who could beat you in any fight and shoot you from a million yards away, you know, but I don't necessarily feel safest with them if they're mm -hmm. going to get me into a bunch of confrontations yeah. versus I've been with some people who a little bit out of shape, a little bit rusty on their firearm skills, but they can talk them way out of anything. I feel safe. I mean, that is a safety issue. And I think if we can reframe our mindset to look at it in this holistic way of you know, having these skills, having the verbal skills, having the psychological skills yeah. is going to keep you safe. And we don't have to rely just on the firearms training and that kind of stuff. They're yeah. both important and they can coexist.
Yeah, John, I'm going to punt it to you. I just wanted to summarize for a sec, because what I heard you say, uh, Eric, is you're trained to, to action, reaction, action versus reaction. And I hear, I hear too, a little bit of, in terms of skill building, there has to be some balance of all the action, reaction, and restraint. And restraint, like you, that's, that's something you have to, that's why I asked that question, because I couldn't imagine, I don't know what, I don't know what it is like to be in a situation, you know, I, my brother-in-law is in law enforcement, and he's, he's, he's called up to do SWAT a lot. And so when he tells me, you know, we, we talk about that, so like, what is that like, walking into it? He's like, you got to be on your, you know, watch your sticks, and you know, that's the language they talk about. You got to always be on your, on your ready to go, so to speak. And at the same time, you got to know when to restrain. And I think that's the skill. That's the, that's the skill that, um, uh, based on what you just said, how you all are seeing, watching over and over and over these videos, you know, psychologically, repetition decides persuasion. So you see this and you think that that's, that's the real world and the real environment that you go in. And you have, to, you have to balance between when to act, when to be react and not to be overreactive and also deploy some type of restraint in those situations. Cause I see a couple, a lot of these videos, there was no time for restraint. It was just, I'm on the scene. I pulled my gun and five seconds later, somebody's laying on the ground. And I'm that, that didn't, that didn't tell me that's reactive. I didn't see, I didn't see any action. I didn't see any restraint. And so I don't know, John, what, what are your thoughts about this? I have so many. <laughs> no, this is a, uh, I, I want to, you know, um, a couple of comments. Number one is when we were talking about defund the police, that question I had, I kept thinking that maybe, you know, that narrative has really skewed some elements of the public view of the police, but um, it maybe should be reframed as refund, redash fund the police mm-hmm. in, in putting the resources where it'll, where they will be most effective to deal with the issues that you're talking about, Eric, but mm-hmm. but I but I kept thinking as you were talking about. So I'm a different. You're my son's generation. They all grew up in the '80s. They're they're in their 40s. I grew up in this in the '60s. We had Vietnam, and uh, some of my friends, including my best friend, did two tours of duty. And you know, I I was a uh, you know a liberal against the war during that whole period. I've, I've asked him and my other uh, friends that went to Vietnam how they felt when they came home. And they said until 9-11, they were never appreciated. Mm. And it made me think about the police. So there you are, you're, you've got all of this, these um, uh, sort of um, really great views on what's needed. Uh, but you also, when you were talking about what it means to be a policeman, I can never be a policeman. I wouldn't have the courage to do it. I mean, I can't imagine having to go around with that mindset. So, so I, I wonder whether, you know, the narrative that we hear ignores that. People can't put, you know, people are not put in their shoes of the policeman. Now, other than what we see on TV, you know, blue bloods. Uh, but but I'm wondering how you personally feel. Do you feel appreciated for what you do? Mm. Yeah, I personally do for sure. I mean, the thing is, is you definitely get a lot of outpouring of support from the public, even during the worst of times when you get a lot of vitriol, there's still a lot of support from the public and definitely support from my family and friends and, you know, community. And, and, you know, especially when I engage in conversations, because I do have more liberal friends and family in the outside world and people who might be more prone to have a tougher view of policing, but they hear me talk about it and they hear my philosophy and how I do it. And they're appreciative that I'm out there doing it. I would say that when you say you could never have done it, I don't necessarily think that's true. And I'm speaking as someone who grew up thinking I would never be the person doing it. Okay. And that is one of my big <laughs> missions. Now I've got nine years left in my career until I retire and probably go do something else. I want to go out in the world and convince people who think they couldn't be police officers to come do it. Oh, good. Yeah. Cause yeah. one of the problems we have is there isn't a lot of diversity in policing. And I don't mean by skin color or that kind of stuff. I mean, that's an obvious right. thing. We just look at statistics, yeah. but I mean, just 
in the philosophies of policing, in the backgrounds and where you come from. I want to go find people who got their master's in social work and are going out and they're, you know, hey, I want to go out there and deal with people who have addiction and mental health crisis and stuff. And I can say, hey, I know a great job for you where you can do that all day, every day, because we need people like that. And that's one of the things I was most disheartened by when there were all the protests and all this energy behind police reform, everyone wanted to talk about it. Everyone wanted to march. Everyone wanted to put a hashtag and a profile picture up. But I was looking around at the recruiting line and I was not seeing people who wanted change in policing signing up to be cops. And I think part of that is because this notion of the violent aspect of it, or, you know, we, we see it in movies. And like I said, the version of being a police officer I saw in movies I never wanted to be that. I couldn't be that. that you know, I'm not, I've never uh, done a dive roll over the hood of a car in my entire career. <laughs> but the actual reality of it is in those more difficult situations, you are highly trained to deal with them. We don't go into any volatile situations without a partner. You know, if it's very volatile, I've got a whole team behind me. There are very few times that I've been out there that I actually felt like, hey, this, mm-hmm. this could go bad. Yeah. Um, and I always feel confident that the people around me is, is going to make it okay. So it's not as scary as people think, but I think that is a big hurdle for a lot of people. And I think mm-hmm. particularly if you grow up and you are more liberal and you're more into, you know, peace and love and rainbows and stuff, and you're not the person who grows up, you know, yeah. playing with guns and, you know, thinking that's super cool. I think if I can go out there and talk to those people, because the majority of my day is spent having, you know, very real, honest, direct connection and communication with all sorts of members of the community. And if you like that, and you want to try to, you know, make a difference, and you want to try to help people out, and you want, you know, something that's rewarding on a daily basis, when I'm out on patrol, there's none of that grind you get when you're at a desk in the office, you know, every single call you go on to is a crisis, it's a problem. It's the worst day of someone's life. And so if that's how you're inclined, it's endlessly rewarding. And I think a lot of people are missing out on it. And I think Mm. our profession is missing out on those people just because of the misconceptions about it. So I am going to go out there and try to convince you and other people to come join me because, you know, I think if you're interested in this new style policing that I think a lot of people are pushing for, we need people out there who are willing to do it. So come Mm. sign up. Nice. Okay, mate. Hey, Kiva, when, when I go down and tell Mimi <laughs> that at age 75, I'm going to sign up to be a patrol. There we go. I think I'm going to have a little bit of a problem. There. But uh, <laughs> uh, you, you've talked about some really significant things that uh, we can do. Um, yeah. Training and, and that sort of thing. Where, are there some models around the country that that are there that that you can point to that say yeah, this is these things have happened and they're working? I don't know for sure. I, number one, I don't necessarily look at a lot of other departments because I'm pretty focused on mine. Sure. Number two, I definitely know, especially in the post-George Floyd world where there's a lot of awareness, there's a disconnect sometimes between what the, the public facing, you know, what the administrators and the bosses are saying mm-hmm. and what's actually going on in the department. So I would mm-hmm. be hesitant to trust if they're saying, hey, we're the ones doing it right. Uh, you don't know unless you're in there. So I, I don't know on, you know, a specific department. I do get the sense that everything is moving in the right direction mm-hmm. in that, you know, there's definitely a, a, a lot of stumbles that are going to happen. A lot of resistance, particularly, you know, when a lot of the bosses now, I mean, they were cops in the eighties, they've been around a while. It was a very different world. This is, understandably hard for them. I mean, they did their whole career and society was telling them, we want you to do this thing, you know, and now it's different, you know? So I feel for them in that sense, but I do, when I look at like younger officers and, you know, I think we are in general moving that direction, but I don't know the specific mm-hmm. okay. place that, you know, yeah. is, Oh, that's the one that's nailing it. Yeah. Let me, um, let me j- jump in with a quick question about um, this whole concept of, you know, politics in the police, because, you know, defunding the police is, was, is a p- political aspect. And then this whole concept of law and order. And not to get too much into the po- politics. However, the previous administration was, was, 
was, was pointing that this is, that was the, we're going to restore law and order in this country. And so as a law enforcement officer, when you hear that, does, do you, does that, you know, did you, did you see that as having uh, an impact on how, um, you know, policing kind of shifted a little? Because it seemed like once that, once that narrative was put out there, we started having, you know, um, an exposure of all of these incidents with law, law enforcement officers. So, when it's, so po politics and policing can be a murky situation. And I, I see how I saw that uh, in the previous administration with this clause that I'm, and, and I'm quoting here, I'm here to restore law and order. And so do you think that, you know, how, how did that impact you personally? And, uh, and did you see some, any emboldening level of it, uh, a sense of emboldeningness within the, within the ranks as a result of that? Not at the level I work at, really. I mean, when you talk national politics, it doesn't trickle down as much to the local level because I work for a, a municipality. Got so it. on our level, we're much more affected by what's going on in our city or state. Um, I, I think maybe some officers feel one way or another if they hear the rhetoric, if they feel, oh, we're being supported or they feel, yeah. oh, they don't like us. But as far as the actual, like how we function, it doesn't make a huge difference but I think it does speak well to something that we do face, you know, on a more local level or just kind of in this conversation in general is this notion that the way we deal with social ills is we turn this dial on, oh, more law and order. Oh, no, more yeah. de-policing. And yeah. that's what's going to go. fix it. And again, right. I think it goes back to the what we're talking about with the defunding. And I would almost advocate instead of talking about how much we're going to fund, defund the police, why are we not talking about what we want to fund? Instead of the slogan, yeah. defund the police, how about fund after school programs, you know, fund mentorship programs, fund right. alternatives to juvenile incarceration, fund right. all that other stuff. And I think we're going to look around and be like, oh, we just defunded the police a bit because they're not as necessary anymore. And I think, again, going back to I, I just think it's something that we've got into in America is this notion that, okay, the police are just going to fix all of it. And yeah. addiction is not a policing issue. Homelessness is not a policing issue. You know, we have to deal with it because no one else did, but yeah. my handcuffs are not going to make someone unaddicted to drugs and my handcuffs are not going to house someone. And so I yeah. think we need to restructure it. And if you want to talk about the funding issue, you should have to come out and say, what do you want to fund? Make a good argument for more and let's do it. Because like I said, yeah. I'd be happy to have less crime to deal with. And I think most police officers would. So yeah, let's let's fund those things. That's a that's a that's a really good point. I like to, I like your analogy about the dialing, this the shifting of you know how police based upon based on some of the political narratives and, and the rhetoric that's out there. You got defund the police, you got, you know, you got police brutality, you got law and order, and, and as, as all of those things tends to shift the way you do the work, but society, this, the social ills remains the same. There's drug addiction across this country. Um, opioid addiction is on the rise. And I'm quite sure you're dealing with it even in, in Seattle, Washington, the same as, you know, whether you're in a suburban area or urban community, it's all over the place. Homelessness is in, in the greatest country, um, uh, one of the greatest countries in the land, we have people who, are, who are, don't have housing. Um, so that's a that's a huge social issue um, that I believe, you know, police have to deal with it. But policing is not going to fix that issue without other um, things being instituted. So I appreciate you giving us a perspective on that, because I do think, you know, police is when I was growing up, they said police are here to serve and protect. Right. Serve the community, protect the community. It doesn't say fix all the social ills. Um, and, and, and so it seems like that's what you all are at times being required, you know, to walk into situations that have um, a lot of things that are on top of the potential for criminal criminogenic behaviors. Um, and like you said earlier, you, you're just not trained. Some officers are not trained to deal with those situations. Um, you hear uh, the term community policing. Mm -hmm. And um, I wonder if you could could uh, give us your view of what that means. Um, what what I infer from that is uh, the police knowing their communities, connecting with 
the people in the communities, the leaders of the communities uh, that they serve, uh, whatever. The, so what's what's the demographic of your that, that you deal with and and how do you interpret community policing? Uh, are there do you connect with church leaders? Do you connect with the social service sector? How, what does that mean? Yeah, so for me, I mean, if you want to talk community policing, you know, you talked about knowing the community, connecting with the community, and I, I would add and probably prioritize being part of the community, because I think a lot of times with the police, there's this sense of other, is that, you know, the people out there right. and we're the, you know, that kind of, but I mean, we are out there on the streets all day, every day. We're just as part of the community as everyone else, even if we lay our head down, you know, in a city, two cities away or whatever, we spend most of our waking time in the city that we serve. And so for me, when I was out on patrol, it's obviously different when I'm sitting behind a desk as a detective, but when I was on patrol, a huge part of it and what I enjoyed and what I thought made me effective out there was getting out there and contacting as many people as I can. So people knew my name. I knew their name. I knew what was going on. You know, people trusted me because the populations we deal with a lot don't trust the police. And so if we're going to go to a crime scene and someone's just been killed or hurt and no one there wants to talk to us because they don't trust us and they don't like us, we're not going to solve that crime. And so there's the sense of community. Police. You can't solve problems in an area if you're the other. You're not going to impose it from the outside. And I think for a lot of us as police officers who believe in community policing, you know, that's something that not only do we find makes us effective, but we enjoy it. That's the fun part of the job. The fun part of the job is that when I'm driving around, everyone's waving at me, I get out of the car and they're like, oh, Officer Doherty, how's it going? And I spent a lot of my time when I was on patrol, just talking to people, you know, even, even if it was just driving around, I saw someone I know, I'd hop out and talk to them. Or if I get called to a call and we got to deal with some problem that happened, sticking around for a while instead of being like, okay, I'm done with that one. I'm out of here. Oh. That's my only part of it. Well, no, no, I, I'm here to help you with your problem, but I want to know what's going on with your mom. I, you know, I want to know if you're passing that class, you know, if it's some of the kids we deal with. And a lot of these kids don't have adults looking after them, checking in mm -hmm. on them, caring about them. And so if I just spend, you know, 20 minutes here, 10 minutes here, five minutes there talking to them, really connecting with them, that can make a huge difference in a kid's life who may, you know, be headed down the wrong mm -hmm. path. Mm -hmm. And so for me, all those things encompass community policing and it makes for a better experience for me, for the community. And then the effectiveness, like if a Bolton came out and, you know, it's maybe a photo from a crime scene, who is this guy? I would typically know who it was because I knew everybody in my area. So, you know, it works if, even if all you care about is solving the crime and getting the job done, community policing still works you know, for that angle of it. And does that aspect get integrated into the training in an ideal situation? Or is it yeah. just something that it's a, an acquired taste? You know, it's just something that's natural for an officer or not. Again, like some of the other stuff, I think it's more incorporated now maybe than it was when I grew okay. up, but it was always something that was talked about. Okay. I don't know how much specific training as far as, you know, here's exactly how you do it. Again, it was the type of thing you pick up from the other officers, like the officers I admired, they would know everybody. Like we'd mm -hmm. go everywhere. Mm -hmm. Oh, hey, going? Hey, how's it going? And they, and they would know this, but I'm like, how do you know 700 different people and they know you and they trust you and they talk to you. And so a lot of things in law enforcement, people gravitate down the lane that either they're good at or they find rewarding or different reasons for them. So we have guys who are very much the tactical guys. We have guys on the SWAT team and they are absolutely phenomenal what they do. And we need them. And we need them in the situations where, you know, I could not go deal with this situation and walk out in one piece. They will take care of it. And then there's people who gravitate a lot more towards the community policing. And there's a lot of people who gravitate towards the detective side of it. And they, you know, maybe don't want to necessarily spend all day interacting with the public, but they love the puzzle and they're really good at it. And that's one of the fun things about the career is that you can kind of go down different paths. I think obviously we have a problem if people lose sight of one aspect of it. And so if I'm out there and I don't know how to, hand, how to handle myself in a fight and I can't shoot my gun, I'm a danger to people around me. 
Like I have to, you know, reach a certain level of we'll all have to there. support each other. Yeah. But yeah. the same thing, if people are out there and they don't know how to talk to people and treat them decently, they're a danger to us too. And so I think the goal in the profession is, you know, we all kind of maybe focus on the thing that we like the best, you know, we're the best at, but then also just trying to raise mm. all of our levels of everything and try to reach the, the highest level of excellence that we can on a job. Again, as we said, that is extremely diverse in what you're asking yeah. on a daily basis. So I, I was going to point to that because you had mentioned earlier when we were talking about diversity, you would, you, you know, there's so many aspects of diversity and race, you know, we tend, society tends to look at that. Oh, you don't have a lot of um, African-American or Latinos on your police force. That's, that's just one aspect of diversity, the race aspect. But what you're talking about here, Officer Doherty, is having a diversity uh, of, of a skilled approach to policing. And I think that's, I think that's critical because you're right. I mean, you, you, you need that tactical person, but you also need someone that's, that has good de-escalation skills because if you deploy that person first, you may not need to call in SWAT. And I mean, so it's a win. It, it's, it can it can win in so many ways. And one of the most most uh, the way that I see that it can win, it it can it's, it can you know in the terms of preservation of life, that should be everybody's goal. At the end of the day, is how do we how do we how do I go home as an officer, and how do I um, preserve the life of someone who may be a victim of a crime or be maybe a perpetrator of crime? Um, you you alluded to the human humanistic or human humanity aspect of policing and this one of the one of your approaches that you see everybody as humans and you know I it would it would be great if we can we can create a policing system not just a force because every police uh, department or police force they all are comprised of this policing system whether it's national statewide local it's a policing system and it would be great if the policing system can view the work through that lens, the lens that you that you have, because um, I think it's a I think it's a really good approach to doing doing the type of work that you do. Yeah, and I th- I think one thing that I try to have people focus on people talk about diversity again. You know, we need more diverse police force, and again, as we've been talking about, that's a lot broader than just what does it look like on the poster? You know, it, it, there, mm-hmm. there's a million different things that you can mean when you talk about diversity. Um, I've heard a lot of sort of gut reactions from people where they'll say something to the effect of, yeah, but we don't want to lower our standards. There's mm-hmm. this idea that mm-hmm. when you seek out diversity, the way you do it is you lower your standards to let more people in, mm-hmm. which when I first heard that was so foreign to me because when I think of diversity, that's, raising the standards. Like if you're in an organization and you're looking to be better and you're like, man, you know, we, we need to cast a wider net. We need to get people with more expertise. Like I'm picturing, you know, more diverse. We got people who speak different languages, people with different backgrounds, people with different, you know, life understandings. We put this all together, man, we're going to be this super team on our, our police force. And so I think reframing that in people's mind that no, no, we're not talking about just okay, you know, grab people, you know, so they look different. That, no, no, no. We're talking about, again, you know, on this job, you need this wide set of skills. And if you want to find people who can do that, you need to very drastically diversify who you're, we need people from all walks of life coming yeah. in. I mean, there's even talk now, and this would be unheard of a little while ago of people with criminal history, you know, mm. if it's long enough ago, you know, under certain things, you know, not if you committed a murder last week, but certain criminal history stuff because you know a person who has come from that life deeper understanding understands it and obviously if they're at our door and they're qualified and they're ready to go they have overcome it and that's huge i would much rather have someone next to Mm. me on the street who has overcome enormous adversity made some mistakes and got to where they got than someone who's never really faced adversity. And the first time they're facing it is when we're trying to deal with this crisis in front of us. And so I think little things like that, that people are starting to really rethink, because in the past, if you would have said, oh, we're going to you know, start allowing people with criminal history, you know, what are you talking about? You're lowering your standards. And I'd yeah. argue, you know, no, you know, if they're, if they're meeting those qualifications and they have that background and they've come through some stuff and they're at this high level, yeah. you know, they're better than someone who just had smooth sailing to get to that level. Yeah. 
there's that, you know, that whole concept of, uh, of em empathic policing. Like what you describe as someone, of course, you know, you know what, what, murder would probably not make the best, you know, but, but I get what you're saying, like a, a misdemeanor or somebody who had some criminal record and they, it's, like, it's, it's in the past. Now they have, they have a little bit of empathy and they can empathize with a person that may be, they may approach on the street that may, you know, may be uh, recovering from a drug addiction or, you know, and, and, and be able to really connect with that person and potentially get them into treatment. I, who knows, but to get, but you won't know until you try. And I think that this, the, the, um, the, the, the term you mentioned lower in our standards, I mean, this is probably for a whole nother show. That's when we start getting to, into that supremacist mindset. And that's the bad, you know, that's a bad mindset to have for anybody who's working in the public, in the public sector. Um, because we can get, we can get a lot, you know, like you said, from all, you know, walks of wildlife in different perspectives, only if we would give folks a chance and not, and not, you know, because I mean, if, if you think about setting the standard, is, is, is this the standard that we're in now where we, sh we shoot first and ask questions later? I would, I would hate to think that this, this is the new, you know, this is the high level of standard that folks are talking about maintaining because people are losing their lives. And we've just come to uncover some of these things because of the advent of technology. So I grew up in New York City and, you know, I grew up in, in, in the Bronx, I mean, in Brooklyn, and it was a lot of racial tension back then in the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, I was telling my wife, you know, she, we were looking at all of these cases and I was like, I was like, honey, it's, it's, it's just thousands of other cases. They just not highly publicized. And I just started telling her, Google this name, Amadou Diallo. And she Googled that and saw it. I was like, oh my God, what happened? You know, um, um, Antoine Hawkins from Queens, all these different names that went through the same stuff that George Floyd and all these other high, you know, publicized, um, you know, situations occurring. They just were not, we didn't have the technology to uncover some of this stuff. So when you think about, you know, your body cam and all that stuff, how do you see technology? Um, do you see it as being um, helping in policing or as being a hindrance? Well, to borrow your guys' term, I think knowledge is what it's all about. And I think the more you shed a light on some, the more knowledge we have about it, it's yeah. always going to be helpful always. And so I think being able to see things is going to serve two purposes. It's, it's obviously going to catch, you know, misconduct and bad actors, but I think also it can be used to kind of illustrate to the public in situations where maybe it was necessary, but you're not going to believe me just saying, and you shouldn't believe me just saying, Oh yeah, it was necessary. But if you can see it and be like, oh wow, yeah, yeah, you know, I get it. You know, I think that's a huge valuable resource. So I think I think it, you know, it works on all ends of the spectrum just to increase the knowledge of what's going on, to show what's going on more. Um, I think also one of the things on our side of the table with policing is historically, if there's a shooting, it's looked at as was it legally justified? And there's a lot of ones that the public don't like that are technically legally justified. And some of the situations are ones where, you know, someone reaches real quick and it turns out to be a cell phone or a wallet, you know, and the cop was there and thought they were going, you know, legitimately thought it was, you know, that there might be something like that. And people may disagree, but legally the courts keep finding, okay, yeah, that was justified. But the question we don't ask enough as law enforcement is, could it have been avoided? Yeah. Right. Could That's we right. have done, let's back up. We always look at the moment of the shoot. Yeah. Okay. Maybe, yeah. maybe it was necessary, but could we have done, and we don't look at that very much. And a lot of it has to do with the culture of, we know that that officer was in a really tough spot and there's this hesitance to second guess and judge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't want to criticize and we don't want someone, oh man, if I have to shoot someone, I want people criticizing me. I think we need to get over that and, you know, really look hard when it happens in a very holistic way and say, okay, yes, you know, by the letter of the law, that shooting was justified. Yeah. But let's back up to the moment you got the call on the radio. You know, did you wait for a back? Could you have waited for a back? You know, how did you position your car? I mean, just really break it down. And I always use the sports team analogy at my work. You know, if we, if we were a sports team and we wanted yeah. to win, 
we would be watching the game film. We would be criticizing that's ourselves. Good. We would have no point. tolerance for sloppiness. Mm. But that's not necessarily the culture in policing where there's a hesitancy to second guess people. And again, I, I do think that comes from wanting to give people the benefit of the doubt because you know you have been in a lot of hairy situations. It's understandable. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I think but it has it, to be overcome. It's it just, it can't exist anymore. So, you know, whether there's a reason for it, we need to get to the point where we are our own toughest critics on everything that happens. And if there was some way to avoid a shooting, you know, whether it was a quote unquote, good shoot or bad shoot, which I hate, there are no good shoots, but you know, a legally justified shoot or not, let's look at everything i mean let's look at the person's training let's look at you know did this happen because i wasn't trained enough in using a less lethal weapon was it yeah. you know because i wasn't trained enough in fill in the blank um and i think if we can get to the point where we do that and start asking the question every time you know not just was it legally justified but was it avoidable was it pre preventable i think we will grow exponentially as a profession you know because these are very skilled people in general who are doing this job and they can adapt to it, but it's not necessarily been part of our training traditionally is we put, we put the impetus on the other person. We give the command, they follow it or and they don't follow it. They, yeah. They're deciding. And, you know, sometimes that's just the way, it, I mean, someone jumps out of a car with a gun, you know, you have very limited options at that point. Yeah. But a lot of times if you look at shootings, there was a lot of stuff that led up to it. And I think spending a little more time, you know, really self-reflecting on how we can improve that will lower a lot yeah. of, you know, yeah. even the legally justified shootings, which sh shouldn't happen either. What was the three words you shared with us earlier? Te you said tell. Is so it it's uh, ask, tell, make. And make. Yeah. Because I'm thinking, I've thought about those three words and I'm thinking about some of the, some of the high profile shootings where the guy is running away from the police officer. And so ask, ask him to stop, tell him to stop, and he's still running. So is the only way to make him stop is to <laughs> empty, out, empty out the gun and he's running away from the officer? I mean, a lot of those you see, there's not even asking or telling going on. I mean, that's yeah. a whole different reality than, you know, we're talking about just sort of, you know, someone's loitering in front of somewhere and the business owner asks him to leave, you know. Right. You know, and I think the word that's missing, you know, in the ask, tell, make, because there's a time to ask, there's a time to tell, there's definitely a time to make. I mean, sometimes that's our only option. Yeah, sure. We got to do it. I would add the word in there, connect, because mm -hmm. we go in there and, you know, if you don't connect with someone, and I don't know if you, I think you guys are parents. I think you've alluded to that in previous shows. You know, yeah. if you're trying to get your kid to do something, you're going to have limited results just kind of yelling at them barking over and that kind of stuff. versus right. take that extra few seconds to connect to collect and then direct them mm. i think you have a lot better results and this is the same thing i mean not the same thing but the, the same concept the principle yeah the principle out there is that when sense. i've got someone and they're just they're so because i mean the people we deal with are so worked up so much and often for very understandable situations and if i'm just telling them to do something that's not going to work I need to let them vent. I need to let them rant. I need to let them blow off some steam. And maybe I should be talking to them about what's upsetting them, hearing that, connecting with them. And then I tell them, hey, but you got to go over there and do it because this dude doesn't want you in front of his store anymore. And it's, it's right. way more successful mm -hmm. to do it that way. But again, it just it wasn't part of the training when I came up. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it's being incorporated and hopefully wow. we're moving in that direction. Time will tell. Yeah. Well, Officer Eric Doherty, thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you guys. We're, we're, we're beyond our, our yeah. hour. And I hate to, I hate to, to stop this. Uh, but before we, we uh, keep the signs us off, anything we didn't ask that we should have asked that you want to offer? I, I feel like we could do 20 more of these episodes Good. and not run out of stuff to talk about. Um, <laughs> you know, that's you part of the reason I reached out to Kiva in the first place is there are a lot of conversations going on in the world about policing and social justice, but there's not a lot of conversations of police officers talking about social justice. So mm. I, I think as a society, we're so far behind that mm. I personally am not going to run out of stuff to say for a very long time. Wow. Good. I'm glad to hear that. 
Well, this was awesome. It's, it's, it's real clear that that your your mom instilled some real strong roots and foundation in you. <laughs> She's gonna and love we, that. And we appreciate her because I think I think that's the way to go. I mean, I always tell people, listen, I may be a licensed social worker, but we're all social workers because if we're all if we all working together to better society and, and to dismantle injustices or work to improve some type of social disparity, we're all social workers. We're all doing our part to make life a better place for everybody. So we really appreciate you taking the time out to, to um, come on, to sh- on, on the show, share your perspectives, share your insight, give us a, a, a real uh, a mental picture of what it's like to be an officer. And I think I have to agree with John. I, think I could be it, but I mean, if you was my training officer, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm you know, I, may, I may give it a shot, but, but, you know, it's, 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 it's a challenging job. And, and, you know, we, you know, I was always raised to respect authority. And I think, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the narratives and all these things that's going around today around policing, I mean, it's, it's just, it's really creating this divide. And I hope that um, in the months or the years to come, uh, we can be, get back to, um, like you said, connecting that whole aspect of connecting with mm-hmm. with the community, um, so that we all can um, live in a safe and, and, and harmonious environment. So thank you so what, for what, what's your joining. mom's what's your mom's name? Uh, Therese. Hi, mama. Therese. Thank you, Therese. Oh, we appreciate you, Therese. Thank you so much for uh, raising such a, a honorable young man. We really appreciate that. Yep. So thank you all uh, out there for listening and watching. Please join us again for another Courageous Conversation and our Race to Social Justice. Officer Eric, Eric, Eric Doherty, my hat's off to you, sir. Continue to uh, do the great work that you do and stay safe out there. Thank you. The Race to Social Justice podcast is produced, edited, and mixed at The Dream in Austin, Texas. Oh.